Hello, everybody. This is George. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel and ITO Coaching and Performance. We appreciate your tuning in with us once again. Yesterday, I was at a trail race, a trail half marathon, which was masterfully organized by Peak Fitness uh, here in the Atlanta area. And a listener named Allison came up to me and said that she enjoyed the podcast. So shout out to Allison and congratulations, Allison, on winning first in your age group at your first ever trail race. Well done. Uh, Remember that we have split up our bi-weekly news and research podcast into two separate podcasts now. Um, And so today, Sunday, the 4th of November, you're going to get our news podcast. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the conversations that are being had inside the running community this week uh, as a result of it being New York City Marathon Week. That race is today. Um, And we're also going to be talking a little bit about the recent uh, marathon in Toronto, uh, the Toronto Waterfront Marathon. There was a new Canadian record set there and lots of other kind of fun things happen that we'll talk a little bit about there. Um, On Thursday, when you tune in for our research podcast, when that pops up in your podcast feed, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about some uh, muscle activation related to running on the treadmill versus overground running, kind of continuing that theme or continuing down that rabbit hole that I started going down last podcast. Um, And then Patrick's going to be talking a little bit about what happens to your form when you begin thinking about your form while running? Uh, and he has some interesting things to share there. Next Sunday is going to be our topic podcast. So next Sunday, the 11th of November, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about some of our favorite races uh, and some of the races that we ultimately want to try and do someday. So uh, tune in for that, and by all means, let us know what you think about that. Uh, don't forget, you can always reach out to us at george at itlcoaching.com or patrick at itlcoaching.com. Or you can send us an email to the general email address, pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us at Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, or on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast. So, on with the show. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are glad to have you back with us here on this news weekend. We apologize for the technical difficulties that we had last weekend that prevented us from being able to put a podcast out, but... uh, we appreciate your patience with us, and uh, hopefully this sounds good and all of our technical issues are fixed. <laughs> um, so, so, so thanks for that. Um, this weekend, Patrick, this is one of those weekends that I feel like I know what football fans feel like sometimes on fall weekends or like on Super Bowl weekend and stuff like that. Because this weekend we have, you know, locally we have the the Savannah Rock and Roll Marathon and Half Marathon, which a whole bunch of people do. Um, We have Ironman Florida is today. The New York City Marathon is today. The Charlotte Marathon was yesterday. The, the, 
uh, Indianapolis Marathon was yesterday. Um, we're just like awash in all of these races that so many of our athletes are doing um, and that so many people that we're connected to and that we know are doing. Um, and so we're, we're constantly tracking. As we're recording right now, the New York City Marathon, the largest marathon in the world, and, and one of my favorite races is, is going on. And so we're probably going to be interrupting ourselves in order to track the race, both the people we know in it and the leaders of the race as we're recording here. So um, exciting weekend, Patrick. Absolutely. As you said, really the month of October is like that where, I mean, it's a, it's so much fun to be able to wake up on the weekends, whether it be Saturday or Sunday and, and see, you know, your social media just full of friends, you know, at the starting line of a race, you know, saying, hey, I'm here at Indianapolis or MCM or Chicago's about to start the race. You know, you put in all the hard training over the, the hot summer months and then you get to reap the benefits in October and early November. It's really a lot of fun. And then to your point, it's 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 been interesting to see how Watching the New York City Marathon used to be something that required like some incognito login at some streaming service you didn't know about that seemed a little sketchy. But now it's on ESPN too. I mean, it's it's really starting to go a bit more mainstream. So it's really cool to see how the sport has taken off and how we're starting to get a bit more um, notoriety and credibility with the broadcast of our events. And that that goes a long way, right? I mean, you know, the big reason the NFL took off in America is because. Pete Rosell was essentially the first commissioner to say, let's go to TV. Mm-hmm. You know, baseball was kind of stuck in radio for a while. Um, but And football was kind of a second-class sport until the invention of TV and Pete Rosell, who said in the early 60s, let's do this, let's make this, you know, primarily a TV product. So, you know, back to kind of running, it's been really interesting to see just how much, you know, as we have more and more runners and more and more marathoners, we have more and more fans. As we have more fans you know, some of the big um, power drivers in this country, mm-hmm. you know, like the NBCs and the ESPNs, they're starting to say, maybe we want to broadcast this. Maybe right. there's an audience out there. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the entire race is on ESPN, too. And then and then locally, of course, they're showing it in New York on ABC7. Um, you know, I got I got the email telling me about that, um, which, is, which is great. Uh, you know, when I was a little kid, when I was in elementary school, I remember, um, it was this is in the time of Alberto Salazar and Bill Rogers, I remember uh, watching... Um, the New York City Marathon on television. And it was the year that Alberto Salazar won, as a matter of fact. And I, I mean, I was a little kid. I was in like first grade, second grade, early 80s. Um, and so there was a time when when they were broadcasting their entire, entirety on television. Um, and then they kind of got squeezed out and, and um, in, in favor of other things. And so, yeah, I agree. It's exciting that, that it, it appears as if in this you know, brave new world of, of all sorts of different media offerings mm-hmm. um, that that uh, we're starting to get more and more coverage and better coverage, um, which is which is super exciting. To say nothing of the fact that like I can track all these various people on the app, you know, um, literally we have started we started the podcast four minutes and six seconds ago, and and six then since then I have gotten a text and a Facebook message of people asking me whether I'm watching and, and commenting about the race, and so so yeah, it's 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 super exciting that's going on right now. Um, there are always around the the New York City Marathon. There's always a lot of conversations about running, um, and and we shared an article um, about um, whether there could potentially be two American women on the podium in the New York City Marathon, um, and and we shared that on our on our Facebook page. Um, but there's lots of other articles and lots of other threads, as we mentioned, that were kind of going on as well. Um, and uh, uh, there was just so much to read and so much to talk about throughout the course of this week. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it also kind of feels like a big Super Bowl week, too, is that 
like there was an article in the the Wall Street Journal. There was a multiple articles, as you would guess, in the New York Times. You know, and then of course there's always the same old places like Let's Run dot com and 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 Runner's World. They're writing multiple articles along the way, and so so yeah, it's it's um, it's it's getting so much focus, and there there's always more more content to to digest, and more analysis, and more interesting things to to to, to digest than there are any of the other 51 weeks of the year. Um, so one of those things, like kind of keeping those things in mind, um, two, two ones that I want to mention. Uh, so I, I, like I said, we, we posted the one on the, uh, on the, the, the website, on our Facebook site about, you know, Des Linden and Shalane Flanagan and all of the other great American women that, that are running in this race. Um, and after Shalane Flanagan showed us last year that an American woman could indeed win, um, then, then. There's a lot of speculation as to whether one of the American women might break through or two American women break through and, and, and actually get on the podium. Um, there was also a good article in Runner's World this week about the male runners in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was something that we had talked about a little bit before on this podcast. Uh, Patrick had, had, had asked before, and we had talked about a little bit, why is it that, that the women are doing so well, but it seems like there's a real gap in the men? And the men, you have Galen Rupp, who's running 206 and who's competing in major world marathons and winning major world marathons. Mm-hmm. And then you have no one else who's under 211. Um, there's this five-minute gap. He's literally a mile ahead of, of all the other U.S. male runners. Um, why don't we have any other U.S. men under 210? Well, there's a, there was an interesting article in Runner's World this week that, that I wanted to share since we had talked about it before. Um, and then, Patrick, I'd be interested to get your, your thoughts on it here. Um, and it basically argues that we do have a lot of runners who kind of fit into that that space there, that that space between 206 and 210, that, that are capable of running like 208, 209, something like that. Uh, and specifically, the article mentioned Chris Derrick, who's running today, Jared Ward, who's running today, uh, Luke Puskedra, Shadrach Biwat, Tim Ritchie, Scott Fauble, Scott Smith, Tyler Pinnell, that fitness guy, and uh, and Andrew Bumbelow. It specifically mentioned that, that handful of guys and said all of those guys are capable of running 208 or 209. So then, of course, the question is, why don't they run 208? or 209 um what is it that's holding them up and keeping that from actually happening um and it made made basically two arguments that that i think are interesting that that i'd be interested to hear what you have to say about them um the first one is it basically says that this group of guys of elite american marathoners tend to be in the wrong races um and specifically they tend to go to the boston marathon and the new york city marathon a lot mm-hmm. um after all i mentioned a few of those guys in that group are are in the boston or in the uh, new york city marathon today um the reason why they go is because boston and new york city they're super high profile american marathons and they get big appearance fees and big bonuses from their sponsors for going and taking part and competing in those big high profile american races um however both Boston and New York City are on tough courses, and they don't have rabbits leading out the race. Um, they don't have pace setters going out in 63 or 64 minutes trying to ensure that people are a lot of people are going under 210. Um, so between the tough course, the not fast course, and no rabbits, um, but yet big appearance fees, you have these guys showing up and running 212, 213, 214, um, but... Um, even when they're capable of being able to run 208, 209, something like that. Um, it kind of mentions, too, that like in the 2012 Olympic trials, you had four men under 210. Um, it was in Houston. It was in ideal conditions. In the 2016 Olympic trials, it was in L.A., and it was blazing hot. Mm-hmm. 
And so you had uh, Galen Rupp won it in 2.11.15 um, and then goes on to finish third in the Olympics. So it's not like he was in terrible shape. And then Jared Ward finishes third in the trials and goes on to finish sixth in the Olympics. So we had third and sixth in the Olympic Games. Clearly, we had competitive guys, right? Um, but they just didn't run all that fast at the Olympic trials because it was not ideal conditions in Los Angeles in the 2016 Olympic trials. So, so that was one thing they argued is that they tend to kind of be into the wrong race. So I'm going to let you comment on that point before we go to the next point they made. So what do you think about that? That's interesting. Um, so I think the argument they're making is maybe the gap isn't as big as we think. Right. Because so you, you can't make the argument that, oh, they should be winning the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon because, or New York City Marathon because they're not, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. So they're maybe still not the best marathoners in the world. Mm-hmm. However, I think their point is that the gap is not as big as right. we originally thought because when you look at the races that they're running, they're running in races w- – under hard conditions, you know, that have a tougher terrain and that have tougher pacing and where you're really having to race the race rather than time trial the race. Right. And that can shave off several minutes. Oh, yeah, for um, sure. And that's that's something I think if maybe you didn't start racing or running until you were an adult when you were just trying to hit your time, mm-hmm. that's something that maybe you, you, you're not from, you know, that a listener might not be familiar with if they didn't run in the NCAAs, they didn't run in high school where – the point was to win, not so much to actually run the fastest time. Mm-hmm. But that actually does have a big impact on your time. Oh, for sure. I mean, consider, okay, so consider just Galen Rupp at the Chicago Marathon. So Galen Rupp at the Chicago Marathon in 2017, mm-hmm. there was no pace setters. And, and he runs 209, mm-hmm. right? It was pretty good conditions, a little bit warm for people who started a little bit later. That, But for him, it was, it was good conditions. It was nice, right? 2000, 2018, the conditions were probably a little bit less ideal with it being rainy and stuff, but they had pace setters. He ran 206 and finished fifth, mm-hmm. right? And so in the, in, in the winter, Mo Farah ended up running 205. And so simply the insertion of pace setters on the same course on a less ideal weather day actually made the winning time four minutes faster at Chicago. Um, I mean, so, so, so simply inserting pace setters can make for a, a, a profoundly different situation. And both Boston and New York have very adamantly said that they, they do not have pace setters and they do not want pace setters. Um, Which I agree with, by the way. Um, I mean, it definitely makes the race more about who wins than about the time, you know? Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's about what you want to be. And you know, we talked after, after Elliot Kipchoge won in Berlin. What's Berlin going to do now? What are they going to be? Are they still going to try and be the place where, where people run really, really, really fast? Um, are they going to try and be the place where women try to run really, really fast? Are they going to focus on trying to get the women's world record? That's fine. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to need to have continue having pace setters. I think New York and Boston know that, that nobody's going to set a world record in New York and Boston, and so they want to make it more about the way the race breaks down. Right. Let's lean into that tough terrain and say we're making this a racer's race. Right. And and, and rather than spending the money on pace setters, let's spend the money on two or three more elite runners <laughs> and, 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 and try and beef up those fields a little bit more. You know, for what it's worth right now, uh, the men, like right at this moment, uh, the, the men in New York City um, are, are, are currently running right about 208 pace. Um, and they're about 15, a little bit more than 15 kilometers in. And they're moving along. I mean, it's not like 208 is slow, but, but that's about what the winning time normally is in the New York City Marathon. That's right. Right. Yeah, um, the New York City Marathon. I mean, that's a it's a course that breaks wills and breaks hearts. I yeah. mean, it's, it's not where you go to run your PR um, if you've been doing this for a while. 
It's a great one, though. And and so in a couple of weeks, or in a week, um, we're going to be releasing our podcast on, on some of our favorite races. Uh, topic week is next week. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about the New York City Marathon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, which, which I ran back in 2016. Um, the other thing that that argue, article argued, that Runner's Word article argued, um, which I think is an interesting point as well, it's a point that was made by Pete Ray, when we uh, interviewed him several months ago, which I feel like we referenced Pete Ray's interview a lot. Apparently he had a lot of good things to say. Right? Yeah, no. Folks, let us know what you think. But, um, but, but Pete Ray said that Bill Rogers told him that, that he needed to start getting people into marathons earlier. Um, that rather than holding people out of marathons until they were in their 30s and stuff like that, he said that wasn't the good way to do it. And that's one thing that this article argues. It says that one reason why we don't have as many people running super fast in the marathon is because they're all still on the track trying to run the 5,000, 10,000 meters. Um, people like Ben True, for example, um, that he should go ahead and move on up to the marathon. And I think that's sort of an if, if marathon success is ultimately what he wants to have. Um, so... They, they kind of mentioned it for, for two reasons. So there's two aspects to this argument. Um, the first one is a point, actually, Patrick, that you've made several times, um, that can take four or five training cycles and, and four or five races to actually learn the event really, really well, to get good at it, right? Um, you know, they quoted Kevin Hansen, who's the, the coach of Shadrach B. Watt and who's the founder of the Hansen's Running Project um, and who wrote uh, the book called The Hansen's Running Method, which, which I reference a lot. Um, but he said, quote, you can't really get in more than two marathons a year. If you come to the event after you're 30, by the time you've run three or four, your abilities are starting to fade as well. If they started at 25, they would have those three or four experiences done by the time that they were 28, unquote. Mm-hmm. Right. And so so the idea to be in there, let's go ahead and get that done. And then they also quoted uh, Ben Rosario, who is the head of the Northern Arizona Elite team, um, which is kind of similar to Bet Zap Fitness, another pro running team that's uh, based, I think, in Flagstaff in Northern Arizona, obviously. Um, but um, he said, quote, if you have a guy and he's run 27, 50, 10 K and he waits till he's in his 30s to run the marathon because he's not as good at the 10 K as he used to be. You can't sit there and say, well, I'm going to run 210 because I'm a 27, 50, 10 K guy. No, you're not. You used to be. You're not in the prime of your career anymore, though. That's what happens when people wait too long, unquote, which I think is super interesting. The idea that that. OK, so you're waiting until you can't quite run as fast as you used to be able to. Well, you're effectively waiting until your skills are waning. <laughs> right. You know, and so so why not try and run your best marathon when you're in your in your prime as a runner, period. Not when when you're past your prime as a runner, as evidenced by your ten K times. What do you think about that? I think that's super interesting. It, it's super interesting. And it kind of gets back to our original point about how the marathon is gaining more and more credibility again. Mm-hmm. Right. The New York City marathon, the Boston marathon, those were kind of the Yeah, good point. Um top events in running in the early eighties. And then it started to kind of wane as we became more and more focused on the 5K and the track and the Olympics. And, you know, those events seem to kind of eclipse the marathon in terms of prestige and kind of social engagement and prize money. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe endorsement money is a better better term there. Money. Money. Yeah, <laughs> period. Yeah. yeah. Money is money. Um, but now as we have more and more marathoners, as honestly, as, as social media becomes bigger and bigger and more marathoners are sharing that they're running and you know even non-runners become more aware of how many marathoners there are out there and that their co-workers are running and training for the new york city marathon it just does tend to, to build on itself and so now 
you know, a lot of the elite athletes are probably starting to say, you know, instead of going for the 5K and then tacking on the marathon at the end of my career, mm-hmm. let's see if we can really make a career out of marathoning. Yeah. And Galen Ruck was almost the first to do that. Mm-hmm. If I'm not, you know, mistaken. Well, you know, he was, well, he was super successful on the track, you know. I mean, and I, but I, I do think that when when Galen Rupp, so so he won the the silver medal in the Olympic 10,000 meters, right, um, in 2012 in London uh, behind Mo Farah, um, his training partner at the time, and and so I think when he decided to move up to the marathon in 2016 and try and compete in the Olympics in the marathon games in 2016 or in the Olympic games in 2016, I think a lot of people. There were a lot of people, and I, I read on several places, they were saying, it's too early. You shouldn't be moving up yet. He should be trying to continue to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and, and, but according to Ben Rosario and Pete Ray and, and you know, the, this overall Runner's World uh, article, the theme of it, um, that, no, he should have gone ahead and moved up. Um, and that's what we all need to be doing, right? Uh, rather than kind of continuing to try and chase fast times on the track. Okay, so so get your fast times on the track, but but go up to the marathon as well. I I also think you know it's it's interesting like looking at Molly Huddle, who I've talked a lot about about a lot, who's racing right now in New York City. Um, I I think I think she's a good object lesson for these t- this argument. Do you know what I mean? Because she's been she spent the last two years now trying to move up to the marathon, um, and and she struggles. She hasn't really quite had her breakthrough marathon yet, you know. And hopefully today will be that day. Um, but are you, are you tracking her right now to see whether today is on that day? <laughs> I am indeed. All right, cool. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't want to say maybe today will be that day and she's already dropped out of the race or something. Um, so knock on wood, I hope that hasn't happened, but, um, but she hasn't had her big race yet, but she's also still continuing to run and compete at the 10,000 level on the track and continue to win national championships. Right. And so rather than rather than waiting until she's like okay i'm incapable of winning any more national championships or competing on the world stage at the 10,000 meters she's going ahead and trying to move up and i think that's a good thing so i i think in a lot of ways she demonstrates some of the things that are mentioned in this article even though the article tries to to tailor them specifically to to male runners in the united states um all right um final word on that what'd you find about molly huddle here have you been able to successfully track her yet uh, yeah, her and Sh- Shailene Flanagan, we're about the 25K mark, are, are both running together. And are on pace for, you know, mid-220s or so. Right on. Are they, uh, are they, they, are they, so they're in the mix then, mid-220s? Yes, they are. All right, very gone. I just got a text from one of my runners who is currently doing the race. That All right, right on. Yeah, no, it's actually good. She, she's, <laughs> she, she's starting like right now. So she, she. Oh, yeah, okay. So, so yeah. No, she, she. It says on the bridge. And actually, when it, I swear, when I first read it, I thought she meant the Queensboro Bridge, which is like 16 miles in. I was like, "Yo, put your phone away." Um, yeah. But, but somebody took a wrong. Time. But no, yeah. She, she, she's on the bridge to to actually start, which is good. So she, she's on the starting bridge, the uh, Verrazano Narrows Bridge is I think the one it starts on, but out of Staten Island and into into Brooklyn. So awesome for her. I'm gonna send her back a couple of big thumbs up here. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, one other thing I did want to talk about here with the New York City Marathon, and we'll, we'll, when we come back in a couple of weeks to talk about news, we'll obviously be t- breaking down the race a little bit and talking about a couple other things. But there was another thread, another conversation thread that I think we would be remiss if we, if we ignored. Um, and that had to do with Ali Kiefer and the ideal size of runners. Um, and there was an article in the New York Times this week, and, and it was reproduced in a couple of other places, um, 
in, in which Allie Kiefer was quoted talking about how throughout her career, people have looked at her and said, you're too heavy to be a runner. You're too big to be a really successful runner. Now, Allie Kiefer is a brilliant runner. Um, um, she's one of the best marathoners in the United States right now. Um, and she has been told throughout her career that, wow, you'd be even better if you lost five pounds. And she says she literally goes back to high school and college, like her coaches would tell her, um, that, that she'd be better if she, she lost a few pounds. And so her response to that very publicly this week was to say, I'm good. I'm strong, mm-hmm. right? I'm built a little bit differently from, from some of the really, really rail thin runners. Um, and, and it was interesting because a lot of folks, uh, rallied around her with that, which, which is great. Um, and saying that, you know, we need to quit trying to skinny shame people and all that sort of thing. Quit trying to say that, that you can't be a runner unless you're rail thin. Um, but then there was also kind of another thread that pushed back against it and said, just because I'm really, really thin, I'm a runner, and just because this is the way that I'm built doesn't mean that I'm also unhealthy and that I have an eating disorder and that I'm also really weak and fragile and incapable of producing children or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so it, it, it has been sort of an interesting ongoing conversation that's been happening in the running community um, as a result of this. Um, you know, Patrick, I'm interested to hear your takeaways if you want to offer them. But, but for me, the one thing that really kind of stands out or the theme that emerges from it is something that, that I came to grips with two or three years ago, or probably a little bit longer than that. Um, it's when I started triathloning like five or six years ago, I think is when I really started to, to realize it. Um, and that's that there's really a, a pretty wide variety of shapes and sizes uh, that work for different people. Um, I mean, it, it, do, do we sort of gravitate in a particular direction? Sure. Um, you know, relative to the general population, yeah. Um, but do you have to be rail thin, um, and do you have to be able to see the veins in all of your arms in order to 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 be a really successful runner? No. And likewise, if you are super rail thin, will you be a really successful runner? Also, no. Um, and so, so for me, I very much. Uh, several years ago, let go of the idea that in order to be an elite endurance athlete, you had to look a particular way. Um, and I think that, that to me is my big takeaway and what I hope is the emergent theme in this conversation. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I have many kind of key takeaways here, or I should say sub points that lead to kind of one overarching point. So number one, when I, I have never told a runner, oh, you need to lose weight to be better. Like that just seems like a, just a, awful thing to tell somebody mm-hmm. and b it, it seems like it's if nothing to put it bluntly or, or kind of um gently it seems like leading having the cart lead the horse i mean you know telling someone to lose weight i don't think that does anybody any good I don't, i'm not even sure there's even research that says if you tell somebody that should be your goal that that they lose more weight than if they just trained the best they could you know they ran you know the miles that they should be running they they ate the things they should be running or they ate the things they should be eating and they were focused on the process itself rather than the outcome of losing weight. So, you know, I don't think we should ever focus on, you know, Oh, you need to lose this weight to be within the acceptable range. That, that seems if nothing else, you know, at best, you know, it seems silly and at worst it seems harmful. Yeah. Um, well, and I, th- I think that's the reason why why she was speaking is because the harmful nature of it is that that you know for her who who maintained her confidence and and maintained her drive um, and is now one of the best marathoners in the United States, best runners, best uh, female runners in the United States. Um, for her, it was harmful along the way, and she was able to brush it aside. Yeah. 
yeah. and still continue to achieve. Uh, for how many women has it been so harmful that they they weren't able to brush it aside, or it 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 led them to harm themselves in such a way that that it that it cut their running career off early. Yeah, and I, I will say too that you know I I should also say for those of you who've never met me, you know I'm I'm a really I'm a pretty skinny guy. So, you know, one thing I have learned just over the years is how much some people do feel that that pressure, you know, via social media or, or peer pressure to lose weight or to look a certain way. And I've never heard that lead to a success story. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like, it's, yeah. it's when you get, you just oversimplify and say, I can't, you know, have I ever heard of a success story where someone was this, was peer pressured this way, and then they ended up better for it? <laughs> right. You know, I can't yeah. think of yeah everybody told her she needed to lose five pounds and they posted about it and embarrassed her on facebook and so she did and then she won an ncaa championship that story has never been told right yeah said no one ever wrote no one ever right so that's that's kind of the starting you know sub point is i don't think that that's um something that's just not a message that i think should. there's no good that can come from it yeah i don't think that's a message that should ever be broadcasted um conversely i do see a little so then there's the kind of the the backlash to the backlash, so to speak, where, you know, some people have said, well, you know, let's also not rail on folks who are very thin for being too thin, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I would say more often than not, when I hear somebody commenting about somebody else's weight or appearance, usually it says more about the commenter than the actual receiver of the comment, if that makes sense. Sure. You know, when you are upset about your own weight or your own physique, your own situation at work, family, whatever that's when you're more apt to kind of lash out at somebody else. So um, I think the overarching theme is I don't know if there's ever been a great outcome from saying, hey, we need to change this person's weight mm-hmm. or we need to focus on this. Right. Generally, when there is an issue one way or the other, either they're too thin or they're, I don't even, you know, or there's something off, generally the best route is to say, hey, you know what? We need to eat more potassium mm-hmm. or we need to. We just need to be healthier. We just need to be healthier in this way. And then kind of the, the, the other stuff takes care of itself. Yeah, I, I, I think so, too. I mean, at bottom, I think that the, the fastest runners and the best runners are the healthy runners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you're healthy at 125, that's where you need to be. If you're healthy at 135, that's where you need to be. If you're healthy at 185, that's where you need to be. Um, and so, so, yeah, I mean, like I said, my, my, my big takeaway, and then hopefully that the, the, – um, other folks are taking away from this conversation is that there is a really wide variety of, of, of healthy shapes and sizes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by all means, running's a big tent. You know, there's, there's, there's 50,000 people on, on the starting line in New York city, you know, and, and I just, you know, everybody on my tracker has now started. <laughs> right. Um, and, and even among the people that we know, there's a really wide variety of shapes and sizes uh, of people. And, and I'm excited for all of them. Um, that's the other thing too, is it just doesn't fit into the running culture. Or kind of what we're about as a community where hmm. we I think we tend to be a very inclusive community mm-hmm. rather than a very competitive one. Um, so to me comments attitudes well, I think we're a competitive one. I think I think inclusive as opposed to exclusive. Yeah, maybe um, that's a better yeah. phrasing of it. Um, but I you know, runners tend not to define their success based on oh I beat this person. Mm-hmm. I think is what I'm getting. It's not a zero sum game, it's a no sum game. And so comments like this does not add to that culture, it doesn't add to that sense of community. Mm-hmm. And I just think it, in general, has no place kind of in, in, in our general community, whether it be from coaches, from other athletes, 
etc. Well, you know, that's one thing that's actually always um, so talking about about the the inherent nature of of the inclusivity of the sport. That's actually one thing that I've always very much appreciated about running, um, and and appreciate now about triathlon and other endurance sports as well. Is that that um, so? Sure, you want to if you, if you're competitive, you want to go out there and you want to beat other people. Um, but so much of what you see, um, and so much of what I hear from athletes, um, is, is folks who are, who are judging themselves against they, who, who they used to be, you know, and they're, and they're like, they're like, you know, a year ago I couldn't swim a lap and now I just, you know, swam a 4,000 yard workout. Right. Um, and that, and they're super proud of themselves and the speed is totally irrelevant. You know, it doesn't matter that that literally Michael Phelps would have swam ten thousand yards in the time it took you to swim four thousand yards or more. Um, um, what matters is judging it yourself. And I always have really, really liked the fact uh, in endurance sports that that you have that meter inside yourself um, that that you can you can use to judge whether something was successful. That we all have our own standards now, and if you want it, you can judge yourself against other people, and and so so it offers that too. Um, but but more than anything, you can say, you know what? Last year I was a ten minute miler, and now I'm a nine minute miler. Next year I'm going to shoot for eight minutes, and it doesn't matter that those are not world class times. You know, um, I also have always liked the fact that there's a direct correlation between the amount of time and work and effort you put in and whether those goals are achieved. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, endurance sports rule. Anyway, um, let's, uh, let's change gears a little bit here, um, and talk about one other kind of quick piece of news, um, that, that some of you might've seen here, um, on October 21st. So it's been a couple weeks now. Um, Cam Levins, a Canadian 29 year old, uh, who used to be with the Nike Oregon project and was a really, really successful collegiate runner, won the, both the 5,000 meters and the 10,000 meters. in I think it was 2011, um, at, uh, at the, at the NCAA meet. Um, he was a 2012 Olympian for Canada, um, and then was injured for the 2016 Olympics. But anyway, 29 year old, uh, ran his debut marathon at the, uh, Toronto International Marathon, um, and ran 209.25 for a new Canadian record. Uh, it was 40 se- 44 seconds ahead of uh, the Canadian national record, so he smashed the record pretty much. Um, but that record was set 43 years ago by a guy named Jerome Dayton, uh, who was at the time that he set it back in the 1970s, uh, one of the best runners in the world. He's a multi-time winner of the Fukuoka Marathon and several others. Um, and so, so yeah, congrats to uh, to Cam Levens on. Um, seeing his way through some injuries over the course of the past few years and, uh, and, and breaking the Canadian record. Yeah. Did you see that? I did quite impressive. Yeah. Super good for him. So two Oh nine 25 for that Canadian record, uh, record, uh, one thing I'll mention um, uh, about his run, in addition to saying that it was fantastic, and well, I'll say two things about it because that's the first I want to say. Number one, it was fantastic, and it, and it showed that if you just kind of keep at it, things will ultimately kind of come together. <laughs> you know, I mean, so so he had this really brilliant year in 2011, 2012. Then things kind of started falling apart, and he got injured. At one point, he was actually in a race, and he crossed the finish line of the race, and somebody kicked him at the finish line, just kind of as people are coming across the finish line. Somebody kicked him, and it caused all this damage to his lower leg, and, and, and so he had to have surgery and all these other things. Um, but he kind of kept at it. And now in 2018, in the latter part of 2018, things have finally kind of come together for him. Um, and so I think a lot of folks are really psyched for him because of that. Um, not just because he broke the record, which is super exciting, but because this is the realization of, of um, 
a lot of hard work and a lot of diligence and a lot of tenacity on his part. And can I just say, too, it's amazing how that is so true, not just for elite athletes, but weekend warriors. Exactly. Well. Yeah, that's I mean, why I mentioned it. That's where, and this is, I know as coaches, I think it's a big pain point or frustration point we have sometimes where, you know, when you train for like a Boston Marathon, or we'll say a New York City Marathon, it doesn't always come together perfectly, even mm-hmm. if you put in the training. You, right. you really do have to give yourself three or four chances mm-hmm. to hit that big PR goal. And it's not that you did anything wrong, that the individual runner did anything wrong. It's just that things have to come together. The right. weather has to be good. Right. Your body has to react properly and not get injured or tweaked right at the end. Um, and that, So you really do have to kind of maximize the number of darts you have on the dartboard to finally hit that bullseye, so to speak. Yeah. You're not going to nail it every time. Yeah, yeah, and you mean, you, and we we've we've talked before about the people who imagine the folks who who are getting ready for a big marathon. They put all their eggs in one basket, and that marathon was the Boston Marathon of 2018. That right. was not going to go the way you thought it was going to go. No, for anybody in the whole field, right? Um, except for maybe Yuki Kawauchi. <laughs> um, you know, I mean that 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 he was the only person who probably trained for such a wide variety of scenarios that that scenario was included. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, he, he, you, you have to kind of keep on going. I mean, you and I have talked about on a more local basis that, you know, you get super fit, you get super excited for a race, you get out there and, and the course is short right. or, or something else like that, you know, and, or, or things are just kind of going brilliantly well and you're having the race of your life and the, the bike escort takes you off the course. That's definitely you happened know? to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so, so and then you're looking back going, that was my one race. I have to train another six months to right. get one more shot. Yeah. Right, yeah. And so, you know, I, I know that recently, you know, you said that that uh, you had a really good half marathon recently, Patrick. Congratulations. Um, and, and it was sort of a long time in coming mm-hmm. um, because you've had a lot of, of races where something happened, um, particularly at that distance where, oh, well, the folks I was planning on competing with didn't show up today or, or the weather turned out to be not conducive for running fast or uh, the bike escort literally took you off course or the course ended up being, you know, half mile short or something like that. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That, that, I'll, yeah. And just to kind of build on that. That's exactly what happened. It had been about two and a half years or so. It was kind of my fifth season of making a run at the half marathon where I'm just thinking, holy cow, my PR is several minutes off of what I think it could be. And then it finally came together and it's, you know, th- I think the key takeaway is sometimes you just have to keep rebuilding that base exactly. and then give yourself more and more chance to show up on the right day. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing I want to talk about with him in particular. So like I mentioned, he was initially with the Nike Oregon Project um, and and he lost his sponsorships as runners do when, when, when he got so injured. Um, and uh, he went for a little while last year when he was starting to compete a little bit more without a sponsor. Um, and then at the beginning of this year, he picked up Hoka Oneone as a sponsor and started running with them. Um, and in the race, uh, he in the Toronto International Marathon, he wore a shoe called the Carbon Rocket, um, which is due out next year. <laughs> yeah, I was, I've never heard of that one before. If, if, if y'all could only see the face that was just given to me by Patrick. <laughs> um, um, but he, he wore the Hoka Oneone Carbon Rocket. It's due out next year. That's going to be my nickname for you, like the Carbon Rocket. Nice. Um, Actually, podcast, let's see. Instead of carbon, what other <laughs> noun can we the put The wrinkled rocket. Um, <laughs> the gray so, rocket. So, exactly. Hey, I'm not graying. I'm not graying now. Um, but, but Yeah. Uh, so anyway, it's due out next year, and and it has, as you would guess by the name, a full-length carbon plate in it. Um, and so up to this point, of course, the only shoe that has a carbon plate in it is 
The Nike Vaporfly. You know it, the Vaporfly. And so this is Hoka One One's attempt to to respond to the uh, to the Vaporfly, um, which. A couple of quick things to say about it. Number one, that was a quick response, I feel like. Yeah. You know? Uh, number two, I really didn't think it was going to be Hoka One One that was going to be the responder. <laughs> All right. Just to kind of digress a bit, who would you have predicted? Because I was actually thinking about this earlier. Like, I, I thought it would be Adidas. Yeah, a- Asics or Adidas. Particularly Adidas. All right? So that, so Because Adidas had been like the shoe. Um, that Haile Geber Selassie wore Adidas and Kenanesi Bekele wore Adidas. And like, like it was the shoe that, it was the world-breaking record shoe there for a while. Yeah. The Adidas Adios was. And so, yeah, I would have thought it would have been them, but it's not. They also have it's the money. It's Hoka One One. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and they have the money too, and they have the wherewithal, and they have the stable of athletes and, and all that sort of thing. Um, so if you, if you want to see a video, uh, runnerswarehouse.com. Um, has they do shoe reviews on there? Of course, in addition to selling all sorts of things that, that runners need, um, they have a review of it on there, um, and they talk about you know the, the the nature of it. And so so yeah, by all means, check it out. But I know you and I have both run in the vapor flies, and we're going to talk about them in a month or so. Once you and I have both raced marathons in, in them, we'll talk about them. But um, I, I mostly bought a pair of vapor flies just to kind of I, I was like Let, let's see. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's experiment with these things. Um, let's see if they truly make me one percent faster. Of course, that's an allure, but but um, let's also see. I just I just want to know what they feel like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so uh, so so yeah, maybe I'll end up buying a pair of carbon rockets come January or February when they come out and uh, and giving those a try as well. We'll see. Um, and then the last thing, of course, to say about the Toronto International Marathon, this will be our last thing here on on Newsweek, because don't forget, we are now separating news and research into two different podcasts. Um, uh, our last thing here to talk about is that the Guinness Book of World Record adjudicators were on hand at the Toronto International Marathon to present certificates to a bunch of new world record holders at the 2018 Scotiabank Toronto Waterfront Marathon. Quick number, very first guess you can possibly give me. How many Guinness Book of World Records records do you think were set at the 2018 Toronto Waterfront Marathon? We were just talking about the Vaporfly 4%, so I'm going to say 4. So, good guess. Wrong. 13. (laughs) Uh, And now, mind you, these are Guinness Book of World Record records, and so they're all quirky, and so we're not including the the Canadian record or anything else like that. So, um, and I'll go through them real quick here. And I want you to tell me, Patrick, which one of these is your favorite and which one of these is your least favorite? Okay. All right. A guy named Blaine Penny broke the record for the fastest marathon dressed as a battery with a time of 2.59.57. A woman named Pamela Bottos donned a Lucille Ball costume and broke the record for fastest half marathon dressed as a television character, female, boasting a time of 1.56.48. Daniel Genettos broke his own record for the fastest half marathon dressed as a chef, by a male, uh, finishing with a time of 1.27.50. Juggler, uh, Michel Lucien Bergeron broke the record for fastest half marathon joggling. That's juggling and jogging at the same time. Uh, with three objects by a guy, by a male, coming in at 117.09. Dude ran ran a half marathon while juggling three objects in 117.09. That's stout for That's under six minutes. Uh, a juggler, yeah, for sure. Um, uh, two guys, Victor Frev Boucher and Freud Fortier Schonard broke the record for the fastest marathon with two runners that were handcuffed together, male, with a time of 3.15.42. Maybe you and I should go after that one. 
Yeah, no. We, we, we could run 315-42 or under 315-42 handcuffed together, don't you think? Oh, we definitely could, yes. I mean, I, in a way, that's what we do at Kennesaw Mountain. <laughs> Sands handcuff. Um, uh, on a similar note, Kyle Pastor, Marco Paleo, David Duarte, and Christopher Hupler broke the record for the fastest half marathon with four runners handcuffed together, male, finishing the race in two hours flat, 28. So if we could find two other guys, maybe we could we could take that one. Um, Bridget Burns, who already held the record for the fastest half marathon in motocross gear by a female and the fastest marathon dressed as a boxer, female, broke the record for the fastest half marathon dressed as a zookeeper, completing the race in 204.46 for half marathon there. Robert Winkler, who holds the record for the fastest half marathon dressed as a cowboy and the fastest half marathon dressed as a swimmer, finishes at the time of 157.58 to set the record for half fa- half, fastest half marathon carrying golf clubs. Good gosh. So the caddying award. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 157.58 carrying golf clubs. That's not bad. I don't, that, that's one that I'm not going to be going after yeah uh julie hillis uh loaded her four kids into two strollers to break the record for fastest half marathon pushing two double strollers by a female with a time of 204.59 that's not bad pushing two double strollers to a 204.59 yeah um gene o dressed as super mario's dinosaur pal yoshi to finish with a time of 135.56 to break the record for a half fastest half marathon dressed as a video game character um Evan Latsky broke the record for the fastest half marathon dressed in an ice hockey kit, a, ma- a male, with a time of 139.50, um, fitting for Canadian marathon. Yeah. Um, two brothers, uh, Petro and Andre Schweipel, uh, dressed as Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble uh, in their foot-powered Flintstone car to break the record for fastest half marathon in a two-person costume at 209.27. Um, and last but certainly not least... Bradley Vincent put on a poop emoji costume and ran 139.50 for the fastest half marathon dressed as an emoji record. Wow, so many uh, things <laughs> to choose from. So, first of all, I feel like this is a Malcolm Gladwell podcast <laughs> in the wings. It's Canadian, it's quirky, like this is right up his alley. Um, I'll, I'll, running. I'll, I'll send him a tweet and let him know he should tune in. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,. My okay, my favorite. I don't even know. They're also probably the jug, either the juggling or the pushing of the double strollers. Yeah, because that, those are the ones that require the most skill, as opposed to just hey, I'm dressed as this. So I would say right. I really like the juggling because that requires some serious motor skills to be able to juggle and run sub six minute miles, yep. I and mean, that is probably the most impressive of anything you listed off. However, my favorite might be pushing the double strollers just because. With like the the Kyle Pease Foundation here in Atlanta, we are kind of used to thinking about <laughs> yeah. how tough it is to push. Yeah, and you just see so many like parents out there who are like, "I want to get a run in, but I also have kids, so I'm going to push the stroller around the neighborhood." Right. And so I just feel like that's a big shout out to all the kind of the moms and dads out there who you know are trying to be parents and athletes at the same time. And look at you getting all serious. Yeah. You sure you don't want to chew the poop emoji costume? Uh, 139.50, man. <laughs> Golly. Yeah, by all means. I also love how most of these records were like 139, 129, 149. <laughs> it's like they're clearly not running as fast as they can. You know, it's well, like I just want to get just under the, that. They're running as fast as they can with, you know, dressed as Yoshi. 
<laughs> what they're running as fast as they can dressed as as an ice hockey player they're running as fast as they can while carrying golf clubs um so yeah to me the funny thing about him is how pres- like how specific they are yeah you know so bridget burns holds the record for the fastest half marathon wearing motocross gear female <laughs> so in other words it's not the overall marathon or half marathon and motocross gear record but you know uh, anyway, yeah, in order to do that, you have to actually film yourself and you have to have an adjudicator there and all sorts of other things like that. Um, so, yeah, very good. So last year, so we do the Lakeside 5K every year in December, mm-hmm. and we dress up as, like, like you know, Gordy dressed up as Santa. We have a bunch of people dressed up as, like, the elves. I'm usually Buddy the Elf. We need to look up what the fastest 5K is for right? Buddy the Elf costume. That's, that, that's a fantastic example. <laughs> and and uh, we should go ahead and give a shout-out to – you just mentioned Gordy. We should give a shout-out to Gordy who, who pushed Lizzie um, during the Marine Corps Marathon last weekend and ran 2.59, uh, qualified for Boston uh, while, while pushing Lizzie. Gordy did. And so uh, congrats to Gordy and Lizzie, and they're ahead to Boston 2020. So excited about that for both of them. We should also give a shout-out, by the way, We've been talking so much about the uh, the Toronto Marathon here. Uh, we should also give a shout out to Benson Capruto, who won the race. Um, <laughs> he ran in two oh seven twenty four. Um, the uh, the the Cam Levin's uh, breaking the record. He actually finished, I think, seventh. Um, no, not seventh, fourth um, in, in the race. And 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 uh, uh, Benson Capruto actually uh, uh, took home the win. So um, I think that's going to do us here for Newsweek. Is that is that right, Patrick? It is indeed. All right. So uh, uh, by now, the New York City Marathon is complete. And so hopefully you're tracking it well. And we will look forward to coming back to you in a couple of weeks when we're talking about news and talking about some of the results and analyzing some of the race. Don't forget to tune in on Thursday for our research uh, piece. And then, of course, next Sunday when we talk a little bit about some of our favorite races. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, George. Appreciate everybody. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Don't forget, if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, we're at Pleasant Podcast. If you want to find us on Facebook, we're facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. And, of course, our sponsors, ITL Coaching and Performance, can be found at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter, at itlcoaching, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. And Blue Pineapple Travel. Reach out to them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, at bluepineappletravel.com, or on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.